0: Well good morning everyone and uh, welcome out to the Medina East Campus. We're so so glad that you're able to be with us on really what is kind of a pioneering weekend. Um, I don't know if, you, if you're a guest with us, you might not know that this weekend actually marks uh, the beginning of our Saturday evening services that we just started yesterday. And so last night, we actually started two new opportunities uh, for people to engage at Grace Church, the Medina East Campus. And so uh, it gives us an opportunity to open up seats and uh, for people to connect in a fresh way. It went awesome. It was, uh, it was wonderful to be able to start that. And I also, uh, just looking in the room right now, I want to remind everyone uh, that we do have Saturday evening services and that there are some seats available there, and so uh, just an awesome opportunity to continue to see God work here um, at this campus. So it's is—it's a bit of an epic weekend for us, and so we thought, man, since this is a a big weekend, it's kind of an epic weekend, we said, why don't we start with just doing a a really big series, and and let's do a series on a topic that just really warms the hearts, you know, one that's... (laughs) really uplifting and brings a lot of unity to people, right? So he said, politics, that's what we'll talk about, God and politics. Of course, what are we thinking, right? Because it's, it's like party foul number one. All of us know this. There's one of two things you never talk about in social settings, and those, of course, are religion and politics. And so we thought, let's just do both of them. Let's just talk about religion and politics, make this awkward and tense for everyone and do that. But, uh, but seriously... Um, We actually do think this is a really, really important series, and the topic that we're dealing with we think is is very significant, Um, and for a lot of reasons. The obvious is that this is an incredibly relevant topic, right? Without a doubt, for anyone who's keeping count, you might know that we are currently 29 days away from electing the next president of the United States of America. Uh, November 8th is coming very, very, very quick. And so because of that, we find ourselves right now in the heat of a political season, and so you, got, you guys all know, just like looking out, we are in a politically saturated culture. So whether you are a person who would consider yourself political or whether you're a person who would consider yourself anti-political, uh, you can't contest with the fact that politics is everywhere. And so we are bombarded with the campaigns and we are bombarded with, with, with uh, the debates and with the media and with the religious rhetoric that we see all around us. For some of us to the point at nauseam, uh, we are just bombarded with this whole thing. Um, about politics. And so it's a very, very relevant topic, but all of us also know that while it is relevant to the moment that we're in right now as a culture, it is also an incredibly heated topic. Especially when you get near a, a, a presidential campaign, this can become a very heated topic. And whenever you talk about politics, it's usually met with impassioned opinions. Uh, Different people varying from person to person have different values, um, have different ideals and those show up in many different ways and so as a result of that, uh, the explosive potential um, of this conversation is one that is heightened uh, during this time of the year. All of us know politics have the ability uh, to turn neighbor against neighbor. Uh, politics have the ability especially in a season like this to create relational tension in family and friends and even in marriages some of you might even be facing that uh, right now this can be a heated topic and so i guess i guess the question would be this then if we know that this is a heated conversation if we know that it's one that's loaded with explosive potential then why in the world are we even having it right why would we even address a topic like this in a setting like this why are we talking about politics In Church and so if that's a question that you find yourself asking at the beginning of this series I think it's a really good question, and I think um, it would do us well to talk about that for a minute And so why is it that we are doing this series? What is our objective as we go through this together? Well, honestly, there's a lot of reasons that we're doing this series But the primary reason the main objective that we're gonna be aiming at in this series is our hope is together for the next four weeks to investigate really just one question and here's the one question, if I could just condense it down in a nutshell that we're trying to investigate is this. How does a person of faith navigate politics? In a nutshell, that is the question that we are aiming after. How does a person of faith navigate through the political landscape? How do we do that, right? And, or maybe I'll put it another way. Um, is there a political position and a political view that flows from Christianity, Right? does christianity have a vision for the state and for society at large or is christianity so heavenly minded that it's of no earthly good and, and 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 so if you are a person of faith how do you navigate through the complexity of the political landscape so that's what we're going to be investigating now listen i know that as soon as i say that that the primary question that we're investigating is how does a person of faith navigate through politics i know that for some of you that makes you feel immediately isolated Uh, Because maybe for you, you're a person that would say, I'm not a person of faith. You you might not categorize yourself that way. Uh, You might be a person that says, I don't know what I believe about God. Um, I'm I'm investigating Jesus. I I would not call myself a person of faith. And so you might be asking, does that mean then that this series has nothing to offer me? And of course, my response to that would be, no, I actually think this series is very much for you as well. And I would invite you uh, to really engage in this series because because I think, first off, I think it's going to be really intriguing to you. I think there's going to be a lot of intriguing things that we talk about as we talk about how a person of faith navigates through politics, and I think that there's much for your consideration as we go through this series, too. I really genuinely believe that you might be surprised at some of the things Uh, that we're going to find as we go through this series. However, if you are a person of faith, which I know is probably the majority of us who are in this room, people who would say, yeah, we are followers of Jesus, we are Christians in that way, then this series is immediately applicable to us, right? It is because, again, what we're really investigating is how do we as people of faith navigate through the complexities of politics? How do we do that? And, and what I've found, and the reason I think this is so important is because what I've found in my experience, and my guess is that maybe you found this too, is that as it relates to people of faith, that whenever we talk about politics, it tends to be a topic that is met with a lot of confusion. Uh, for, for those of us who are people of faith, I think a lot of times we find ourselves confused. confused. How do I act politically? How should I engage with politics? How does my faith inform my political stance? Should my faith inform my political stance? Should these things be separate, right? As it relates to politics, should I pick a party or shouldn't I? How engaged should I be in the whole political landscape? And we become really confused about this whole topic of knowing how to integrate our faith into our politics. And so there's a lot of confusion. And I think, again, what I found in my experience is that as it relates to this confusion, what happens is people of faith tend to lean towards one of two different extremes, okay? And so on one extreme, what happens is people of faith go towards something that I call political disengagement. Okay, political disengagement. And as you can imagine, political disengagement is exactly what it sounds like. It is disengaging politically. And what happens is people of faith say, I'm disengaging, I'm, I'm withdrawing politically. It's a politically dismissive mentality. Uh, Someone that's in this group of of a person that would say, I'm politically disengaged, they might admit that politics is necessary, but if they do admit that politics is necessary, they would say it's a necessary evil, right? Uh, The political system is broken and it's corrupt and the leaders are all messed up in some way or another. Therefore, we're going to disengage entirely from the whole political thing, right? Uh, This group of people basically says politics carries no weight to me. And so I, I, I disengage, I disassociate myself with it altogether, now, this might sound like an overgeneralization, but it seems like more and more, this is the position that young people are increasingly taking. Uh, there are legions of statistics that have been done on the millennial generation and their growing political disengagement. Uh, what they're finding right now is that millennials, for the most part, view politics uh, with suspicion, with skepticism, uh, with pessimism, um, and, uh, and basically, they, they want to dissociate themselves from it altogether. Some of you guys might remember, in fact, there was a song that was released about 10 years ago, uh, back in 2006. I think the song does a great job of really capturing kind of the spirit of political disengagement uh, for the younger generation. It was a song by John Mayer, real popular songs on the billboard, uh, charged, uh, waiting on the world to change, you guys might remember. And in that song, like I said, I think John Mayer does a great job of really vocalizing kind of this position. Here's what he says in that song, you guys might remember. He says, me and all my friends, we're all misunderstood. They say we stand for nothing and there's no way we ever could. And we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it and so we just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. So we just keep waiting. Waiting. Right, that's your cue. Waiting for the world waiting on the world to change. And and that's what he's saying. Very catchy song. But again, I think what he does, what John Mayer does is he really can, is he really accurately portrays uh, this idea of political disengagement. He says, Man, we see the world, we see those who lead it, we see wars, we see, all, we see the, 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 the venomous political rhetoric all over social media, and he's like, We're just done. We're, we're gonna, rather than engaging in being a change agent, we're going to stand on the sidelines and we're going to dissociate ourselves entirely from the political landscape. That is political disengagement. So sometimes what can happen is this is something, this is a view that people of faith and people uh, who don't have faith can take. But as it relates to those who are Christians, what happens sometimes is we take this view and we would say, not I'm waiting on the world to change, but we would say, no, I'm waiting on the world to end. And so I've put my hope in God, I've put my trust in God, i put no hope in the political system, and so I'm just going to wait till Jesus comes back, and everything's going to burn anyway, and so we're going to insulate and isolate, and we're going to separate, and we're going to come over here, and we're not going to engage in any way politically. That's one extreme. Now, on the other side, what happens is people of faith can take an alternate view, which is the extreme opposite, and that's what I would call political activism. Uh, political activism, as you can imagine, is the exact opposite of political disengagement. Whereas political disengagement would say withdrawal, the activist would say no, actively engage. Whereas the politically disengaged would say politics bears no weight, the activist would say no, politics bears all the weight. Uh, whereas the politically disengaged would say there's no hope in politics. Now, the activists would say, no, all of our hope is in politics. And basically what happens with the activists is they say, we have a vision for, for Christ and for Christianity and the values of Christianity to transform our society. And we believe the main way in which that transformation takes place is through the arena of politics. And so this is a group of people that says, we need to, we need to be active. We need to politically involve ourselves. We need to lobby, uh, to put Christian leaders in office. Uh, We need to work hard to fight to keep prayer in the schools. We need to fight to keep God in the White House in some way or another, and and God, and this person would be uh, considered an activist. A person in this camp might, for example, look at the increasing de-Christianization of our our, uh, country, and they might look at that and say, see, that's a problem with America. We need to figure out how to fight to get God back into American values. A person in this category might look, for example, at how over even the past 40, 50, 60 years, how, how the landscape of our culture has shifted so dramatically, whereas 40, 50, 60 years ago, it was socially advantageous to be a person of faith, where 40, 50, 60 years ago, it was actually considered morally respectable to be a person who had Christian ethics and values. Now, today, for the very first time in American history, it's considered morally inferior to be a person who, who holds Christian ethics and values. In our culture today, it's more socially acceptable and is more politically acceptable to abort your unborn child than it is to pray in a school. And what the activists would look at, and they would say, see, that's the problem. So now we got to fight. we got to fight politically, and so we have to protest where necessary, and, and we, need to, we need to become actively involved in getting prayer back in the schools. We need to defend religious terms in constitutional documents, in God we trust, one nation under God. We need to fight in these ways, and that would be political activism. So here you have it, two very, very different polar extreme opposites of how to navigate through, through the political scene, both stemming from people of faith, and I think what this does is it just highlights, again, the confusion that this topic is met with as it relates to people of faith. And so again, the question we want to investigate is, is there a response, a political response that flows from Christianity? Does Christianity have a vision for state and society? Does does Christianity, is there a way to navigate this in in a way that honors God? Now, let me just say from the very beginning of this conversation, this is probably obvious, but I probably should mention this, that I am not a political commentator, all right? I don't know, um, I don't claim to understand the complexities that surround the political landscape as we face it. I don't claim to understand all the complexities that surround the political issues that we face. Um, And and so I I don't speak from any platform of political authority. I have no credentials that way. But our hope in this series, and the reason that I think that this is worth your attention and worth your time, is because what we want to do in this series is we actually, our aim is to get a comprehensive idea of what the Bible teaches about God and politics. Basically to get a theology of politics. That's what we're trying to do in this series. And I think, I think, I think that as we spend the next four weeks together and we look at what the Bible teaches in a comprehensive way about God and politics, that you're going to be surprised at what we find. The Bible actually has a lot to say on this topic, and my hope is to unearth that together. All right. So to begin our conversation today as we jump in, I want to start by looking at what's going to be the foundational passage that's going to guide us all the way through this series. And the passage that we're going to look at together today is found in Mark chapter 12. So if you got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them with me. And let's go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12, all right? So go ahead and get your Bibles and go there. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that is uh, not a problem. We have some for you, I think, in those chairs. And so you can turn to Mark 12. I believe it's on page 709 in those Bibles. And, uh, of course, if you're a smartphone person or if you're a tablet person, if you have a Bible app, feel free to use that. Um, Or you might not know this, Grace Church actually has an app. And so if you want to download that, you can too. Uh, If you go to the App Store search for Grace Ohio, you can find Grace Church, then download the Medina East Campus, click on that, and uh, you can get to the passage that way too. So Mark chapter 12. However you get there, go ahead and get there. And uh, as you're flipping there, let me just, uh, I thought that it would only be appropriate because like I said, this is a conversation that has a lot of explosive potential. So I thought, man, it would only be fitting if maybe before we got into this that we just laid down some ground rules, all right? So you guys cool with that? If I lay down a few ground rules before we jump into this series? Okay, let me just give, I'm gonna suggest three ground rules to us for the next four weeks. So here's the first one, and, and hear me out on these. Here's the first one I'm suggesting. Let's check elephants and donkeys at the door, all right? So can we just instate a policy? Let's just check elephants and donkeys at the door. If you're a third party person, whatever animal represents your party, you know, the chicken, I don't know, check it at the door, all right? And, and let me tell you what I, here's what I mean by that. What I'm not saying is that if, they, if you affiliate with a particular political party, that that means that that's a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that if you are looking for this series to endorse any one particular candidate or party, that's not gonna happen. That's not what we're doing. And so if you're like, oh, this is great. Grace Church is going to tell me who to vote for. No, that's not what's going to be happening in this series. If you're like, oh, awesome. I have some political literature and I'd like to put it out in the cafe. No, don't even ask. All right? We're we're just not going to do that. We're going to check elephants and donkeys at the door. Because here's what I think is going to happen. I think what you're going to find is that as it relates to what the Bible teaches about God and politics... That there is no one political party that fully encaptures everything that Jesus teaches on this topic. Jesus does not neatly and cleanly fit into any one of our categories. Fact, I would even say this. If you are a Republican, there's going to be times in this series that when we're looking at passages of the scripture and we're talking about some of the things that are said, you are going to be convinced that I am a flaming liberal. And there are going to be other times, for those of you who are uh, Republicans, that I'm going to be talking about some of the things that Jesus says, or, uh, that, I, that are Democrats, you're going to be convinced as I'm talking that I must be a staunch conservative. And, and, and here's the bad news. The bad news is, is that if you are looking for a political affiliation in this series, the bad news is you're not going to find it. But the good news is this. The good news is regardless of your political affiliation, everyone in this room will be offended at one point or the other, right? (laughs) Because Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He offends everyone at one point or another. We're actually going to watch that happen in this passage. Jesus offends all of us at one point or another, and it's a great thing, right? Here's the second rule I want to lay down. Second ground rule is this. Let's engage the entire conversation. I want to suggest, and I want to invite, and I want to encourage you to engage the entire conversation. Here's what I mean by that. This is a four-week series, and this is the first week of four weeks, but I don't want you to think of this series as four separate messages. That's not how it works. Instead, I want you to think of this series as one continuous conversation that we're having over four weeks, all right? So for example, today is just an introduction. Uh, By the end of our time today, uh, you're going to feel like it was very anticlimactic. You're gonna feel like you have more questions than you do answers, and that's okay because this is the beginning of a conversation, it's the introduction. And so to take any one of the messages in this series in isolation uh, at the expense of the others, I think uh, would leave us susceptible to to coming to shallow conclusions. And So we don't wanna do that. And so I just wanna encourage you to engage the entire series. So whether you're a person who regularly attends here or not, whether you're a person of faith or not, I would encourage you to hear it all the way through. And then if at the end of the conversation, uh, you decide that you wanna disagree or that you have um, some critiques of the conversation, we would invite that and that would be, that would be okay, all right? So uh, rule number one, check elephants and donkeys at the door. Rule number two, let's engage the conversation. And then here's the, here's the third one. Let's approach this conversation as much as humanly possible with humility and grace. Let's just, let's approach this conversation with humility and grace. And I'm saying this to myself, as much as I am saying this to all of us, let's approach this with humility and with grace. Look, I, I understand, we, we said this, that this is a very uh, potentially explosive conversation, that there's a, of, there's a lot of heat that comes with a conversation like this. And I think because of that, that means it's gonna take an extra, gra- extra measure of grace and humility on our parts. Look, I know that most of us in this room, if not all, of, probably all of us, Have very firm opinions on politics and on God. That—that's—I—I know that because I'm—I have very firm opinions on politics and God. I know that many of us do as well, and probably for good reasons, right? We—we all have our reasons behind that. But because of that, I think again that there's an extra need for humility and grace. And listen, when I say that we need to approach this with grace and humility. What I don't mean, and that's not a diplomatic way of me saying, look, we just all need to get along. That's not, that's actually not what I'm saying. When I say that we need to have humility and grace, what I mean by that is we need humility because we need to recognize that not any single one of us sees everything clearly. No one sees that. I don't see everything clearly. You don't see everything clearly. Only God can see everything clearly. And so because of that, we need to have Humility. Every single one of us has particular views, and those views have been molded and have been crafted and have been formed by our culture, by our family, by our circumstances, and by the media. But but to claim that any of us sees everything clearly and and accurately would be a mistake, and it would be arrogant. And so we have to come in with a sense of humility and say, man, we don't see everything clearly. For example, I'll go back to the history books, and I'll leaf through the pages and there are so many times throughout, throughout history that, that, I become, that I'll cringe in embarrassment of some of the things that people of faith did in the name of politics. It's, it's, it can, like, for example, I read about how British pastors, very well-intentioned British pastors, used the Bible as a way of justifying British imperialism. And I cringe at that, Right? Or I even look back in our own culture's back door, and I look how American pastors, well-intentioned men of faith, use the Bible to justify things like slavery. And look, it's so easy for us in our current cultural moment that we're in right now to look back at those people and to say, oh my gosh, how could you have been so narrow-minded? And oh my gosh, how could you have been so foolish? How could you have come to those conclusions? But man, let us not be so ignorant to think that we are not susceptible to doing the same thing. So we need to have Humility and we need to have grace. We need to have humility and grace for the conversation, and we need to have humility and grace for each other. It is entirely possible for two people who love and follow Jesus to disagree on issues politically and to still be united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, there needs to be grace and humility. Because this is a conversation that requires grace and humility, I thought that it would only be fitting that before we jump into Mark chapter 12 that we stop for a moment and we ask God for his help. All right? So let's do that together. Well, God, I just uh, want to come before you, and uh, Lord, I do want to ask you that you would give us grace, and you would give us humility, that you would give us wisdom. So we navigate through a topic like this that is very complex, one that is uh, very touchy, it can be very heated at times, Jesus. Uh, we, need, we need clarity, and we need wisdom that comes from you. Father, as a country, we stand in a moment in time of transition and uh, uncertainty, Honestly. And so, Father, because of that, we need your help. We need your help. And I pray that you would teach those of us who follow you, God, how how to be actively involved as citizens in a way that honors and glorifies you. And so, Lord, would you teach us that? Would you show us that? Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we would have an openness of mind, an openness of heart, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, that we might learn from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. The passage we're going to start with is in Mark 12, and in this passage, we're going to watch Jesus say probably the most potent statement in the entire Bible on the topic of God and politics. And the context in which Jesus says this statement is in the midst of a question that a group of people have asked him. So let's take a look at this passage together. We're actually going to start in verse 13 of chapter 12. So we're going to start about halfway through chapter 12 in verse 13. So let's take a look at this together. It starts off, it says, later... They sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Okay, so let me just pause there for a minute. I know we're jumping in right in the middle of the story, right in the Gospel of Mark, and so it would be important for us to give a little context as to what's going on. I know you probably noticed that this verse begins in, uh, in verse 13 with the word later. It begins with the word later. That's a pretty significant word for us as readers because that signals to us that there was something that happened earlier, Right? So, there's a later, must have been an earlier. I know that sounds really simple. But the question is then, what was it that happened earlier that's going to prompt the things that happened later? So, let me tell you what happened earlier. So, what's happened so far in the Gospel of Mark is Mark has taught us that Jesus Christ has started his ministry. He's been preaching, he's been teaching, and he's been talking about something called the kingdom of God. He's been saying things like, The kingdom of God is upon us. And he's been saying things like, my kingdom is not of this world. And then when you get to Mark chapter 11, the Bible tells us that Jesus has been growing in popularity. He's been amassing followers for himself. And then Jesus goes to do something very controversial. The Bible says he goes into the temple, which, of course, some of you might know was the religious hub in the Jewish society at that time. Jesus went into the temple, and the Bible says he began to cleanse the temple. And basically what that means is Jesus started to overturn tables, he started to drive out money changers, people who were selling uh, products for profit in the temple of God. The Bible actually tells us in one of the gospels that Jesus actually took the time to make a whip. And then he went out and he started to uh, use the whip and drive people out of the temple. A very bold and a very aggressive move on Jesus's part. So of course, after this happened, the religious leaders were really frustrated with Jesus. And then, when you get to Mark chapter 12, the Bible tells us that Jesus goes on to give a couple parables that were directly against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. So now the religious leaders are really honked off at Jesus, so much so that the Bible tells us that they were looking for a way to kill him. All right, so they are out for blood at this point. All right, so that was earlier, and now the Bible says it's later. So what happens later? Look at this. Says later. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. All right, now, just pause there again for a minute. I want you to notice these two groups that are mentioned here. It says the Pharisees and the Herodians were sent by the religious leaders to talk to Jesus. Now, this is really fascinating, and here's why. Some of you might know the Pharisees and the Herodians were two different Jewish sects of people back in this time. Uh, Both of them uh, were Jewish, uh, comprised mainly of Jewish men who believed in the Old Testament, believed in the Torah, the God of the Old Testament, of Yahweh. But they had very, very, very different political viewpoints. You remember earlier how I said that we can tend to drift to one of two extremes, to political disengagement or to political activism? Well, the Pharisees and the Herodians basically could be characterized in the same way. The Pharisees were those who were politically disengaged. They were politically separated. See, what the Pharisees believed, they believed that God was their king. They believed that, that they were underneath the leadership and authority of God. Therefore, they did not need to submit to any earthly ruler or authority at all. They separated them. In fact, the word Pharisee actually is derived from a term which means to separate, And so these guys were politically disengaged. They said, we don't need government. The government's corrupt. The government's worldly. The government is not from God. All we need is God. We don't need politics. That was the stance of the Pharisees. They were politically disengaged. On the other side, though, you had the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were the activists. They were exactly the opposite of the Pharisees. In fact, their name, the Herodians, is derived from Herod which some of you guys know, the Herods were the rulers who Rome appointed over the Jewish people back in this time. And basically what they said is they said, in order for us to honor God and to serve God, we have to work through the political system. We need to, we need to honor Herod. We need to work out his plans and his procedures. God has provided Herod for us, so we need to, to, to kind of acquiesce to the Roman government. And they were very politically active in those ways. Both people of faith, very different political positions. And by the way, these two groups, they hated each other. The Pharisees and Herodians were constantly arguing and bickering about everything, debating over all. They couldn't see eye to eye on anything. They were natural enemies. And now notice these two groups of natural enemies come together under a united cause. And what is it that causes these two groups of enemies to now become friends? Well, you notice back in verse 13 what it says. It says, a group of the Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus to catch him in his words, to catch him. Some of you have translations that say he came to trap him. Why is it that these two natural enemies became friends? Well, because the enemy of my enemy is, is my friend. That's why. They were united in this. They both wanted to bring Jesus down. They both wanted to get Jesus out. They wanted to bring him down. And so they, so they conspired together. They said, we're going to find a way to trap him. And then they activated their plan in verse 14. Look at this. It says, they came to him. They came to Jesus. And they said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the, word, you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And it says, pause there for a second. You notice the excessive flattery, right? They come to Jesus like, Jesus, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity, Jesus, we know that you're not swayed by, by, by people and by their opinions. In other words, Jesus, we know that you're the same guy no matter who you're in front of, whether you talk to the Pharisees or whether you talk to the Herodians or whether you talk to Rome or whether you're in public or whether you're in private, Jesus, you say the same thing everywhere you go. We know that, right? And you guys can see what they're doing. We can see through this, the flattery, right? My kids do this to me sometimes, like, oh, dad, you look great today. I love you. I'm like, what do you want, right? And they, what are they doing? They're buttering you up because they want to roast you. And that's exactly what's happening here. They're luring Jesus in because they want to drop a trap on him. And then they go on and they set the trap. And the trap comes in the form of an incredibly well-crafted question. Here's the question that they ask Jesus. Look at the second part of verse 14. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And So this this is their trap. So come to Jesus, two groups of people that have nothing to do with each other politically, disagree on everything. Come to Jesus and say, we got a question. This is the question we're gonna ask him. Say, Jesus, we know you're a good teacher. You're a man full of integrity. You never say anything contradictory. You never do that, Jesus. We know that. One question for you. And then they, they spring the trap, and the question is this. Should we pay the imperial tax, or shouldn't we, to Caesar? Should we, or shouldn't we pay this tax? Now, now listen, you need to understand that this question was absolutely brilliant. This question in the minds of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they would have thought that this was the checkmate move on Jesus. They would have thought, we have him. And and listen, in order for you and I to understand the brilliance behind this question that these guys asked Jesus, you have to understand a little bit of the historical situation in which the question was asked. So bear with me for just a second. I'm just going to give you a little bit of history, but this is so important in understanding Jesus' response. I want you to notice that when the Pharisees and the Herodians ask Jesus, should we pay the tax or not, they don't ask it in a general way. They don't just say, Jesus, should we pay taxes, yes or no? That's not what they ask him. They ask him about a very specific tax, the imperial tax that was paid to Caesar. Now, why is that significant? Well, here's why that's significant. The imperial tax was a tax that was actually originated about 25 years before this conversation happened. It was initiated by a guy named Tiberius Caesar back in 6 AD. And basically what the, what the imperial tax was, it was a poll tax. It was kind of a census tax. It was a tax that every Roman citizen had to pay. And it was basically as an allegiance. It was saying we are, we, we are honored to be underneath the leadership of Caesar and underneath Rome, therefore we pay this tax as a way of tribute. It is a poll tax. It is an imperial tax that we pay to Caesar. Now, the reason the Jews hated this so much, the Jewish people abhorred this. And the reason was, first off, the Jews already hated the fact that they were underneath Roman rule. The Jewish people were people who believed, were people of God, we follow God, God is our leader, God is our authority, God is our king, not Rome, and certainly not Caesar. And Caesar, of course, some of you guys might know this, claimed to be divine. Caesar said, I am the son of God. That's what Tiberius Caesar would say about himself. And so the Romans were like, we already hate Rome. We already hate Caesar because he contradicts everything that we believe. And now in addition to that, we are forced to pay a tax to Caesar who thinks he's the son of God, who's ruling over us with a government system that we don't believe in. This was so hated by the Jews, this tax, that when it first was initiated in 6 AD, that it caused a revolt among the Jewish people. There was an insurrection that happened underneath the leadership of a guy named Judas the Galilean. It was actually mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 5. And when Judas the Galilean revolted against the Roman government when this imperial tax started, listen, he did three things. Here's the three things that Judas the Galilean did back in 6 AD. Number one, he got a group of people together and he cleansed the temple. Judas the Galilean in 6 AD with a group of rebels went into the temple, overturned tables, and drived out money changers. Here's the second thing he did. Judas the Galilean started to preach about the kingdom of God. He started to proclaim, we are not underneath the leadership of Caesar. We are underneath the leadership of God. Therefore, through sheer effort, we can usher in the kingdom of God. That's what he taught his people. And here's the third thing he did. The third thing he did was he commanded those who followed him not to pay the imperial tax. And what happened as a result of that is Rome found out. They came in, they executed Judas the Galilean and his followers, and they snuffed out the rebellion. So now, listen to this. 25 years later, Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. And what did he just do? Cleanse the temple. And what else did Jesus do? He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying, My kingdom has come upon you. Jesus was saying, My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom. And listen, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Herodians, thought to themselves, Man, there's only one thing missing. For this guy just to be another rebel who has rebelled against the Roman government just like everyone else, there's only one thing missing before Rome would bring him down. And what is it? Imperial tax. It's the imperial tax. So they come to him and they ask him, Jesus, just one question for you. Just one question. Should we pay that tax or shouldn't we? And man, they had him trapped. What a question that was. Because look, if Jesus answered no, if they said, should we pay the tax? And Jesus said no, here's what would have happened the Roman government would have came in and they would have executed Jesus and they would have written him off as another rebel who has revolted against the Roman government just like Judas the Galilean and just like so many others who came before him. It would have been the end of Jesus. It would have been the end of his ministry. It would have completely blotted out the whole thing and discredited him. But if Jesus said yes, should we pay our taxes? Yeah, pay your taxes. What Jesus would have done is he would have undercut everything that he taught about himself being the son of God and about the kingdom of God. He basically would have said, yeah, acquiesce to Caesar and to his claims of divinity. Acquiesce to this corrupt government system. Go ahead, and it would have discredited Jesus entirely. So you guys can see, this was a brilliant question. What a trap it was. They thought they had Jesus pinned until Jesus answered. Because the way that Jesus answers is genius. I want you to see what he does. Look at this. Look at verse 14. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 15, the second part. But Jesus, this is great, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, Jesus said. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? And let me just pause there because I want you to catch what's happening here. This is really good. So so Jesus, they, they, they think they have him trapped. Should we pay the tax or not? And what Jesus does here might seem subtle, but it's very significant what he does. Jesus says, "Um, I know you're trying to trap me. I know you're trying to trap me, but notice he doesn't say, I know you're trying to trap me, so no comment. Nor does he say, I know you're trying to trap me, so I'm not gonna answer your stupid question. Nana, Nana, boo-boo, right? He doesn't do that. What does he do? Here's what he does. He says, I know what you're trying to do. I know you're trying to trap me, but I'll answer you anyway. I'll go ahead and I'll answer you anyway. And then he goes on to answer them in the most unexpected way. This is so great. Jesus goes, he says to him, does anyone have a denarius? Anyone got a denarius on him? And by the way, the denarius would have been the coin in which a person would have paid the imperial tax. That was the coin that you would use. Now, like I said, this might seem really subtle, but I think this is really significant what Jesus just does here. Notice Jesus doesn't say yeah, let me get out a denarius real quick and let's take a look at it. That's not what he does. He asks them for one. And so basically, think about this. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians have come to Jesus and they said, Jesus, should we pay the tax that all Jewish people abhor, that everyone believes supports a system that goes against everything that we believe, that supports uh, Caesar, an emperor, who, who believes that he's the son of God and undercuts everything that the Jewish faith adheres to, should we pay that tax? That supports this corrupt system. And Jesus goes, does any of you happen to have a coin from that corrupt system that you're talking about? And they're like, oh yeah, right here. <laughs> Do you notice Jesus don't even have one? Jesus and his disciples don't even have one. How punk rock is Jesus right now, right? He's like, you have the question and you have the coin. I don't even have the coin, but in case we're ta- because we're talking about it, sure, let me see the, the coin. They give him the coin. And then Jesus looks at it, and he says, Who, whose picture's on this? Whose inscription? Now, let me show you real quick. I actually want to show you a picture of the coin that Jesus was looking at. It was a Tiberius denarius. We know that with certainty. It was a Tiberius denarii. And uh, this would be a picture of one of those. Actually, it's a really common coin. Um, this is something that archaeologists find often. It was equivalent to about one day's wage for a low-to-middle-class worker. It's a denarius. So pretty common coin. And uh, we're actually, in this series, we're going to get into what lies behind this coin, because this coin is actually incredibly significant to what Jesus is about to say. But we don't have time to get into all of it today, but for our conversation today, I want you just to notice the face that's on that coin. That is Tiberius Caesar, that's his picture. So Jesus takes this coin from these guys, he looks at it. He doesn't even have the coin. He's like, you guys got the coin? They got the coin, he looks at it. He says, whose picture's on this? Jesus knows whose picture is on the coin. But they respond to him, they said, Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus says this, Jesus said to them, you give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and you give God what's God's. One simple, small, pithy, tweetable phrase with less than 140 characters. <laughs> Jesus answers them. He says, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's and you give to God what's God's. Now to us that might seem like a really simple little statement that Jesus just made, but it is so profound and, and we know this in part because of how the religious leaders responded. Notice how they responded to this next part. The Pharisees and the Herodians, notice this, and they, the Pharisees and Herodians, were amazed. They were amazed at him. The word amazed literally means, in the Greek language, it means to marvel with admiration. And so these guys looked at Jesus after he said this little statement, and their minds were blown. Now, here's the question I want you to consider, all right? What was it that Jesus Christ just said about God and about politics that made these two groups of people who couldn't agree on anything politically, that made these two groups of people who were so set in their ways politically and religiously, what was it that Jesus Christ just said about God and politics to these two groups of people that were convinced that they had a question that was going to pin Jesus to the wall? What was it that caused them to suddenly stand in a position where they were amazed at him? Their minds were blown. What was it that Jesus just said about God and politics that introduced to them a new category of thinking that had never occurred to them before? See, because here's what I believe. I believe that little statement that Jesus says right there, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's God's, is the most potent statement about politics that the entire Bible gives about God and about politics. I believe that there are 10,000 pages of truth and theology behind that one tweetable phrase. And so my hope in the series is that as we journey through it that we can unearth all that lies behind what Jesus Christ has just said there. Because here's what I believe. I believe that as significant and as relevant as what Jesus said to the Pharisees and the Herodians that blew their mind and introduced a new category of thinking to them that had not otherwise occurred to them as it relates to God and politics, I believe that it's just as relevant to our situation today in October 2016 in the United States of America. And my hope is that in this series, as we unearth what's behind what Jesus Christ just said, all the theology that lies behind the idea of God in politics, that we as well, like the Pharisees and like the Herodians, would be amazed at what Jesus said. Let's pray. Well, God, I just want to say thank you for your word to us this morning. God, um... I really ask you that as we engage in this conversation for the next four weeks, Lord, that, that, that what would be said would not come from man, that what you would be said would not come from opinions, but Lord, it would come from your word. But I pray that you would give us understanding of what it means to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to give to God what is God's. Would you introduce to us a new category of thinking that might stretch our mind and stretch our faith as it relates to God in politics. Help us to see clearly in a time of ambiguity and fogginess. Father, I pray that you would, um, that you would lead your people to a place of effectiveness in a way that you would have us to be effective in a time where our culture needs, needs, needs you in a powerful way. And so, Lord, I pray that, again, you would direct us, give us wisdom, give us humility, give us guidance, God. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we navigate the next weeks together. Thank you, Jesus, that you have not left us alone on these issues, uh, that you have given us your word to be a guide and to teach us and to help give us balance as it relates to some of these conversations. So God, as we go from this place, I pray that we would be blessed. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.